Vilek, or something like that, which is, and he went. And it's Deuteronomy chapter 31, Isaiah chapter 60, and Matthew 21, 9 through 17. And the Haftorah section uh, begins, it's Isaiah chapter 60. It begins this way. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And that kind of sums it up. Last week we talked, it was called standing, or the week before was standing. And the whole point is, these, presumably us, are God's people, and we uh, tend not to walk in his ways as much as we do, or probably we don't more than we do. But at the end, and that's what Moses is telling these people, at the end of their 40 years, after all that they've been through, after all the sins they've committed, after the Lord rebuking them and chastising them, and everything that happened to them, they're still standing because the Lord is the one who keeps them. And at the end, the sunlight will shine upon them because the Lord said it would. And it's not so much because they were uh, fine people, but it's it's because of the Lord and, and for his name, these things will happen. So this Haftorah section, and it's the whole chapter 60, which is worth a read, pretty much sums up really the whole deal. These are God's people and they were called for a purpose and that purpose uh, will be to, to be in his house at the end. And the story of how they got there is, uh, is not one of how great we are, it's one of how great he is. So this, this Torah portion begins, we read that Moses is 120 years old and not allowed to cross the Jordan. And this apparently happened, they say, on the seventh day of Adar, which this year was March 14th, my sister's birthday. Um, and Moses says he can no longer come in and go out. And as you read that, you might think it's because he's 120 years old and the joints don't work and all that. But Deuteronomy 34, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, Moses was 120 years old when he died, and his eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. So he didn't, he, when you read that he couldn't come in and he couldn't go out, we tend to assume it's because he's old, but he couldn't come in and he couldn't go out because the Lord said, that's it. You're not, you're not going into the promised land. You're stopping on this side of the Jordan. And there are... Uh, various reasons why that is. A lot of people wonder why his bones weren't picked up with Joseph's and carried into the land, but they weren't. And we, you know, we read that the Lord said it's because he uh, didn't honor him at the waters of Mirabeau when he smacked the rock twice and called the children uh, what they were, <laughs> stiff-headed rebels or stiff-necked rebels. I think there's another reason too, and, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, when we consider 
our personal walk with the Lord and we consider uh, the way the nation is going and the way the world is going, we, you know, it's pretty easy to see it's not going in the right direction. And it can generate maybe some anxiousness and a little fear. And as Moses was talking to the children before they were going into the promised land, and this is literally hours before they're going in, um, he tells them, be of strong courage and, and fear not. just lost it again and as I look at the world today you can say the same thing you know that we already know how it's going to end and we see all these things in front of us that look terrible when the when the children were just outside the promised land they were going in there was still giants in the land there was still people in there and Moses said to them, fear not, be strong, be of good courage, because the Lord goes before you. And the Lord is going to uh, get rid of the people in the nations. So you don't need to worry about it. And in the same sense, I think that's the way that we should look at it, is we pretty much already know the end of the book. And we know the Lord's promises, and we know that... The world is not going to uh, all of a sudden have this big revival and everybody going to turn to the Lord. We don't have to fear because we know the end. We know the Lord. We know our relationship with him. So I think that is a, is a valid comment today as it, as it was then. And, and remember, Paul said that we, if we're the last generation, have to look to this generation as an example. And this, is, to me, is one of the clear examples they were facing fear and worry and dread and we look at the world and face you know fear and worry and dread and Moses is telling them you don't need to worry the Lord's going before you and at the end you will stand and we look at or at least I look at the things that are going on and you wonder how that's going to happen but he promises it will so God tells Moses to anoint Joshua to lead the people in the land. And Joshua in Hebrew is Yehoshua, which is from the word Yeshua, and it means salvation. So Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua, Yehoshua, Yeshua. So the, the picture is that Moses could not, he could bring the people to the promised land, but he couldn't take them into the promised land. Yehoshua or Yeshua or salvation is the one that's going to take them into the promised land. And yeah, exactly, Joshua. So you, you know, in that sense, I see why Moses wasn't allowed because he has the wrong name. Only Yeshua is going to bring you or Yehoshua is going to bring us into the promised land. So Moses was allowed to bring us to the promised land. And if you remember, the Lord has said, talking about the end times and how he's going to bring his people to the land, but not all of us are he, is he going to bring into the land. And this is exactly the same picture we see here. 
you know, Moses brought the people to the promised land and the first generation didn't, didn't get in. He couldn't bring them into the promised land. And this will be the same thing. Jesus will meet us, I assume, or take us or, you know, and I've said this before, there's some method or some event or something that's going to happen, I believe, is going to get us physically over there. But being over there isn't necessarily indicative of eternal salvation. He needs to bring us into that. And the person who can bring us into that is Yeshua, is Jesus. And for them, it was Yehoshua, which is the same word. To me, it's it just fits together so well. So Moses was to anoint Joshua, Yeshua, Yehoshua in the sight of the people so that his authority wouldn't be questioned. And as you, if you read the account, the Lord said to Moses, go get Joshua and bring him into the temple. And the, uh, the Lord appeared in his uh, cloud and, and fire as he would do in the temple and anointed Yehoshua as the new leader to bring the people into the land in front of the sight of the people. And then it says that uh, Moses went to, into the, he told the people to go back to their tents and he went to their tents and obviously he didn't go to all of their tents, but he went to, I think to the tents of the leaders of the tribes and explained, you know, again, what was going on. I'm leaving. The Lord told me this is it. Joshua was the guy. You're going to follow him into the promised land. And, and the Lord also expressed to Moses, which he expressed to the people, um, some other things. So he was talking about, uh, you know, the Lord is going to keep his promise. And again, the Lord's not keeping his promise due to the fine work of the children, he's keeping his promise because it's his name. It's, it, that's, that's what he does. So he tells Moses that the children would come into the promised land and then they would be scattered due to their disobedience. And then they would be regathered at the end of days in the latter days and taken presumably into the promised land for good. And that's, that's exactly what's happening. If we're at the end times, we have been scattered. The Lord took, after the, the people were dis, he moved them into the promised land and everything was good. They conquered all the nations. They built their cities. And it, it, as we read these things, we read one line after another. It takes us seconds to read it, but it occurred over a period of four or 500 years. And then they, due to the abundance, the Lord told Moses, and due to their uh, hard heart and all of that, they slowly walked away from the things of the Lord to embrace the things of the world. And we read that and you think, well, how, how, is, how is that even possible? You're living with the Lord in his land and he's given you all these things and done all these things. And then you diss him for idols of wood and stone that can't think and move and and it seems crazy, except that's us. That's what we've done. When this country started, or when the people, you know, in the 1600s and early 1700s, 
these people that came to this country were committed to the ways of the Lord. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the Tanakh. They knew the, the Torah and the commandments and the laws. And they did everything that they could do to live a moral life and follow the, the things of the Lord. And now here we are three or four hundred years later, well, three hundred years later, and we've done the same thing that the children did. Just tonight, it was two of the candidates for president saying churches should lose their tax-exempt status and, you know, people should be thrown in jail if they don't embrace gay marriage and, and, and the whole gay agenda. It's, it's the same as it was. And it's interesting. Hi, Linda. It's interesting reading some of the um, Jewish commentaries about the book of Genesis, especially when we get to, if we do these, Cedras, first and second Cedras, and we're talking about this, the Lord repented of making mankind. We had become so evil that he was going to wipe them out, which he did, right, save for Noah and his fam, who were uh, pure in the sight of the Lord. But you read the commentaries of the Hebrew rabbis, and they say, this, this is just, and this was written in the, you know, 1100s, 1200s. So they're 4,000 years or 2,000 years, whatever it is, removed from the actual event. And of course, they weren't there, and there was no uh, social media or you know, cameras to take pictures of it, so nobody really knows. But the way they interpret this, and it, it, it just has always struck me as interesting, they give several reasons why the Lord finally decided enough was enough. And the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back, again, this was written 15, 1800 years ago by rabbis, the straw that broke the camel's back, all the sin that was occurring, you know, the murders and the robberies and the rapes and all of the stuff that was, you know, just the horrible things that were going on. But the straw that broke the camel's back is when the people codified uh, that homosexuality was okay. And that was it. And when the United States passed that law a few years back saying that was appropriate and, and you know, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, <laughs> I've read this. This is what led to the end last time. And I, you know, my, my opinion hasn't changed. I, I believe we have passed that point at which, uh, you know, we, we can't stop. What's, and that's good. We don't want to stop it <coughs> because that's ultimately how we get to the end. And the if you go back even further, the implication has always been from the six days of creation and all of that, that we will, there will be 6,000 years of history. Then the Lord will return. There will be another thousand years, the seventh day. And then that's it. After that, the, the earth is rolled up like a scroll, it says, and the new heaven and the new earth come down whatever that means physically. And those that are with the Lord go with him to live in his house for all eternity. And those that aren't, aren't. And my understanding is because it says in scripture, and this is a whole nother deal, um, 
that if you don't follow the Lord, then you'll be separated from him eternally. And there are the fire and brimstone types that will try to tell you that that means, and it might be, I don't know, that that means you're going to burn in hell forever. My understanding is that place was not designed for rank and file people like us. That was designed for these, you know, the beast and the, the actual enemies of God. And they may have a punishment that's, they may have a punishment that's eternal. I think for the rest of us who choose not to follow the Lord, we'll be separated from the Lord forever. I think it's, to me, it doesn't seem like it's the character of the Lord to torture people for eternity. I think your soul just dies and that's it. That's it. You're gone. There's no, you know, there's no reward. And you talk about the reward all the time. You talk about separation from the Lord. Very seldom do you actually talk about a place of eternal torment and burning. And when you read that in English, when you look back on it in the original language, most of those don't really say that. There are a couple that do, and it's referring to specific people, the beast and, you know, all these, these people. But I think for us, when the 7,000 years of history is over, you will, you will either be with the Lord or you won't. And if you're with the Lord, then you go to the New Jerusalem, and it's the mansion that you read about in the New Testament, and he's building you this new home and all that stuff. And that's awesome because you have chosen to follow after him and you will be with him forever and it will be glorious and wonderful and all that. If not, you're not. But the point is there's a fixed amount of time. There's 6,000 years. The Lord returns again. There's another thousand years and that's all the history there is. So of course the world will try to tell you, oh no, it's been 14 billion years and you know, it's going to be another hundred and some odd billion years and you know, anything the Bible says, the world will say the opposite. And that's one of the reasons that you know it's not 14 billion years is because that's not what the Bible says. So these people have to tell you why, because that's what they do. But anyway, there is a time frame. And we tend sometimes to think that these, you know, the Lord is going to do what he's going to do based on what we do. If we fall away from the Lord, then he's going to, you know, and it somehow leads to the end and that's I don't think necessarily true I think there's there is a there was a time from the beginning this is how much time there is and it is what it is and he's our you know he's seen the be, the end from the beginning so he already knows but it's not so much because of our actions it's all because of his actions or his time frame if that makes any sense Okay, so Paul tells us to look at these people and not to do or use them as examples to not do the things that they have done and the mistakes that they have made. So then Moses, getting back to the Torah portion, uh, instructs the people and the priests. Now remember Moses uh, was tasked by the Lord to write the Torah. He actually wrote it out on a scroll. And if you remember a couple chapters ago, when they crossed um, the Jordan, no, whenever, whatever they did, they, yeah, they crossed the Jordan. They built, they, they stacked the 12 rocks and they actually wrote the Torah on the rocks, all the words of the Torah. So, the, so the Torah is only written in two places. It's on the scroll that the Levites have. It says in this chapter that Moses was to finish it 
and lay it on the right side of uh, the, the ark. So the Levites had access to it, and anybody who wanted to go see the rocks had access to it. But the people didn't have their own Torah scrolls. Right? They had to listen to what Moses was saying or what the Lord was telling Moses to say. And after Moses is gone, they would have to listen to the Levites. And that's why when Jesus came, he said, do what the scribes and the Pharisees tell you to do. But don't do what they do. Live according to the Torah. Live according to my laws. And if knowing that politicians are going to be politicians, they're going to lie and steal and cheat and be corrupt and all that. But we still need to follow what they say to keep civil order, which is a republic. We don't necessarily need to do what they do. But everybody did not have a Torah scroll. So how it had worked from the beginning is the Lord put all the stars in the heaven. And that's where we get the constellations and astrology and all that stuff. But those, you know, Virgo the Virgin and Leo the Lion and all of the, those things tell the story of Scripture. Because you didn't have your own Bible. So in order to repeat the word and the accounts and the rules and the commandments and the ideas of the Lord you had to know. And one of the ways he kept you on the straight and narrow was he put the story in the skies, the Matsuroth. So it's all up there so you could keep it in order and, and hit, the, hit the main part. But sometimes we think, and I guess, well, you know, if you ask anybody, they would answer correctly, but did, did people back in those days have their own copy? No, of course not. But we don't think that necessarily you know we just assume that they knew or they could reference or and they really couldn't it was it was they had to know and they had to obey so obey and do and the people that were supposed to help them know were the priests and the priests had access to the only other copy of the torah that there was and that's how we got the scribes the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes were the tribe, the people who actually copied it. And they did make copies of the Torah, but still everyone didn't have one. The king was, at, later when you had kings, the king was supposed to have and keep a copy of the Torah with him at all times so that he could consult it because he had to make the decisions and guide the nation. And how could you possibly guide the people without knowing God's law? And that's the question I ask every week, is how can you possibly repent of your sins if you don't know what you're repenting from? If the Lord has said 613 different things, which is what the rabbis claim, and I'm not, I wouldn't validate that number, but there are a number of things that the Lord has asked, instructed, judged, you know, commandments. Well, if we don't know them, We'll never repent from them if we break them. And if we don't repent, there can be no salvation. So it's vitally important that the people know what the Lord said. And that's incumbent on the priests back in those days and even today to keep the people informed of the truth. 
and they would keep each other on the straight and narrow and they could always consult the the sky, the constellations, we call it, the pictures in the sky, the Matzeroth, they called it, to keep the story straight. So Moses tells, long way around the barn to say this, Moses puts this copy of the Torah, this written copy, the very first copy of the Torah, puts it near the ark where the, the, the priests can get it. And he tells the priests and the people that on every Shemitah year, every seventh year, the year of release, the Torah is to be pulled out and read, the entire Torah is to be read in the presence of all the people, young, old, rich, poor, strangers. It's you're to bring your young children because we don't do that. You know, at our churches, we all put the children in, in children's camp or school or something. We don't bring them in to hear the word of the Lord. But of course, we don't really read the word of the Lord like they did in those days. But every seventh year, everyone, the entire nation is to hear the Torah read. And I wish we still did that today. It's from that rule that the rabbis later decided that, hey, we should do this. We should read it through twice every seven years. So there's a three and a half year program that you can read. And then it was, no, we should read it through every year, which is the sedras that we've been reading. So you can read through the Torah every year. But the Lord's command was every seven years, listen to the entire Torah. And three or four times you'll see this in scripture where the people have walked away for generations and then some king will discover this this, this Torah scroll in the temple or the priest will find it or something. And then it clicks on, oh, we're supposed to read this and they'll gather all the people and they'll read it. And it changes everything. It changes the heart of everybody who hears it. The priest, the king, the people. And I kind of wish we, we still did that. Paul says in the book of Romans, in chapter 10, verse who for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of who they have not heard? And how shall they hear of him without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, truly their sound went into all the earth and their words went into the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people and by a foolish nation I will anger you. So when, whenever it says by them that are not a people, you, you know that's us, right? That's the Gentiles. And the, this, this idea is hit dozens of times that, the, that us, the Gentiles, the people who didn't know the Lord, came to know the Lord to make the Lord's people or Judah jealous. Because we knew more about it 
than they knew. We knew the Lord better than they did. And that should provoke them into jealousy to find the Lord. But it starts by hearing. And that's what Moses said. That's what the Lord told Moses is, is my law, the Torah, the first five books, must be read to the people every seven years. Physically read, they should come and listen to the entire thing. And I'm not certain how long it would take to read through the first five books, but it's certainly not going to be 20 minutes followed by donuts. It was, it was an all-day deal, I'm sure, maybe a multi-day deal. And it was a big deal because hearts would be changed and you bring all your young children who didn't know, they've never heard this before. And that's exactly what this section says, the young who didn't know, what does this mean? They would ask their parents and then their parents would explain the meaning of all these things. And that's to, to this very day, that's what the educator types will tell you is the best way to learn is you might write it, speak it, and do it, or you share it to somebody else. And once you get it in your head so you can tell somebody else, you're likely to remember it or something like that, right? If we just read it, it goes in and out. We get some of it, but you don't get much of it. But if you read it and understand it and explain it, you're going to remember it. And if you do it every seven years or even more, then you're going to know it. And that's what Paul is saying. You got to hear it. You got to know it. You have to internalize it. You have to believe it. And you have to do it. Because hearing it doesn't save you. Even believing it doesn't save you. You have to do it. You have to hear it and do it. So that's the idea of faith. <clears throat> Uh, immunah is the word in Hebrew, and that's where we get the word amen. So faith and amen are essentially the same. So it's hearing and doing. Faith is hearing and doing, and it's from the word amun to trust. So you remember when, when this thing we just read in Romans that Paul said, faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? What was it they heard? The Torah. There was no New Testament when Paul said that. He's taught, like every other disciple, when they say anything about the Word or any of that, they're talking about the Torah. They're not talking about the New Testament. There was no New Testament. The New Testament is the book about them living all this truth out. It was about them hearing and obeying and doing. But it didn't exist when they said those things. So every time Timothy and Paul and Peter and all these guys were talking about the scriptures or the truth or the word of God, or they're talking about the Torah, these things that Moses is, is telling the people and the priests at least once every seven years, you have to read, hear, understand the whole thing. So this is the section of scripture where that, that comes from. So the other thing I would ask is in, in the New Testament, the Second Testament, there are so many modern Christians who believe that Jesus came to do away with the Torah. 
And of course, that's not what it says, but that's what they think. And to some degree, that's what they're taught. But the question would be, God has put so much into us knowing and remembering and doing these things. Does it make any sense that at some point in the future, he's just going to trash it and start over again? He's going to come up with his whole new story, the new covenant, they claim. It doesn't to me, and it certainly doesn't look that way when you read these things. So, okay, so one of the other things he's talking about in this Torah portion, and he has talked about in past Torah portions, is this idea of uh, private sin and, and revealed sin. And the idea is there really is no private sin, because if we sin in our private lives, you know, nobody's going to see it, nobody's going to know, it doesn't hurt anybody, it's no big deal. Well... That's not so much true because if the individual sins, it damages the family. And we saw that with Achan and you know, there's a number of things. Remember, Achan is the guy when uh, the Lord knocked the walls down at Jericho and he gave specific instructions. You can take this, but you can't take that. You know, and Achan saw this cool stuff and he took it. Well, who's going to know? You know, you slip some gold bars in your pocket, you get a new tie, you know, big deal. Who's going to know? Well, God knew. So the whole camp was thrown into turmoil and they didn't know why. The enemies were attacking and they were beating them and they didn't know why. And the Lord's, you know, Joshua went to the Lord and said, what's up with this? And the Lord said, there's sin in your camp. And they found out that it was Achan who had taken some gold or some jewels or whatever from the spoils of Jericho and he wasn't supposed to. So he's thinking nobody's going to know. Well, God knew, and it affected, certainly it affected him, and it affected his family, and it affected his tribe, and it eventually affected the whole nation. And that's the way sin works. It, there is no private sin. It will eventually all be revealed. And it's not just a, a, a victimless crime like they call it nowadays. There's no such thing. It's a, it's a crime against God. And not only will you pay, but your family, your tribe, and your nation will pay. So uh, Moses is going through that again. Um, <clears throat> so this is, in this section, Moses finishes writing every word of the Torah, puts it to the right side of the ark, and it says that he wrote this for a testimony or for a witness. And the King James adds, against you. This, these words in the Torah are the measurement of truth. They're the measurement of goodness. We compare ourselves with the words of God, right? And that's the witness. Can we do that? Do we believe that? Do we obey that? Do we do it? Those things. That's, it's the testimony. It's the testimony of God. And like I say, King James adds a testimony against you because they already knew you, you weren't, we weren't, we couldn't keep it. Okay, so back to the Torah portion in Deuteronomy 31, 16 through 18, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, you shall sleep with thy fathers, and this people will rise up and go a-whoring after gods of strangers, of the land where they go 
to be among them and they will forsake me and they will break my covenant which I have made with them and my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and I will hide my face from them and they shall be devoured and many evils and troubles shall befall them so that they will say in that day are not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us and surely I will hide my face in that day for all the evils which they have wrought and they are turned to other gods. Now it's interesting that this is the section of scripture that I believe it's this exact verse, but it's certainly chapter 31 that Abraham Lincoln had his hand on when he opened the Bible and took, took the oath to the presidency because the country was about to be ripped apart. And it looked, it certainly looked to him as though the country had turned their face away from the Lord and he had turned his away from this country. And it just, I thought it was interesting that that's where he put his hand on. So Moses tells, the, tells Joshua and tells the leaders of the tribes that this is what's going to happen. He's not pulling any punches. You people will walk away from the Lord and he will turn his face from you and you will be scattered. And it's interesting, this word here, evils, is sarah. That's, you know, the T-S. Sarah, and it's literally a tightness but it can also mean a taskmaster. So it seems to say that if we turn our face from the Lord, he'll turn our face, or his face from us and send us a taskmaster. We will be back in the same boat we were in Egypt. We will have godless people ruling over us, telling us what to do. And again, you, know, you listen to the news, just listening to it tonight, and you've got all these people saying all these godless things and they want to become our task well they will be these people are going to take over and they're going to turn the world into something that they want it to be and it's not going to be pretty uh, this word again sarat taskmasters is the word that we get czar from and a czar is a taskmaster so it's interesting, if we turn from him, he will appoint troubles and taskmasters over us. And I would suggest we're just about there. Um, so we turn our face from him, he turns his face from us, and then we're scattered among the nations. And we're given taskmasters and troubles. You know, and you can do the math if that's where we are today. Isaiah 8, 17 says, I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Okay, that's, that's where we're going to be. Numbers 624, the Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord make his face shine upon you. That's the hope. But the Lord's face will not shine upon us unless we're looking to him. And, you know, you think about the moon, because he put all these things in the heavens for us, to learn and as signals and beacons and signs and and I don't know that they knew this then I'm certain they didn't know this then actually but you know how the moon, you look at the moon and it appears to be shining it appears to be a light and it's not it's a reflection the moon has no light of its own it's only when the face of the moon is turned towards the sun that we can see it and I'm 
totally convinced that was one of the many reasons he put that in the sky, because that's exactly how it works with us. If our face is turned away from the sun, you know, the S-O-N sun, we have no light. But if our face is turned towards the sun, S-O-N, then we can reflect his light. And that picture is there every single night. And it, we, we, that's why there was a feast on every full moon or every new moon, because the moon would go away and it's gone for several days. And then it comes back and it's this picture every 30 days in case you didn't get it from the Torah, in case you didn't get it from the Bible study, in case you didn't get it from Moses, in case the priests didn't make their point, in case you, you were unable to figure this out any other way, every 30 days you get that same story. When the face turns away from the sun, it's darkness. But when the face turns back, it's light. So they would have a, a feast every New moon, and that's why it's the <clears throat> it's the light. It's a picture of the light of the Lord. So the end of the days, um, Israel will begin to turn their face back to Him. And I would read again Malachi four, starting in verse four. It says, "Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, when I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel with the statutes and the judgments." Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And I've read the end of the book, and that's not how it ends. So to me, that means in the days of Elijah, at the end times, at this day of the great dreadful day of the Lord, the hearts of the children, Judah, will be turned to the hearts of, I mean, the hearts of the fathers, Judah, will be turned to the hearts of the children, Israel, the Jews and the Gentiles, and the hearts of the children, the Gentiles, will be turned to the hearts of the fathers, Judah, the law, the Torah, and we will be one, just like in Ezekiel, where he takes the two, his, Judah and Israel and makes them one. Just like when Paul's talking about the wild olive tree and the natural olive tree becomes one. That's how we know, that's one of the ways we know the end is here. So in order for that to happen, you have to have a separation. There has to be, there had to have been a turning away from the Lord so that he can bring us back. It's the picture of the moon. There's darkness, and out of the darkness comes the light. It's the picture of creation. He created everything out of tohu vabohu, out of chaos and darkness. He could have created it all, you know, sunshine and unicorns, but he started with darkness and brought the light out of that. The moon is the same way. Everything through scripture is the same way. So we should expect to see, and that's why Paul's telling us to look to that generation, we should expect to see the same thing that they did. They came to the Lord. They turned their face to the Lord. The Lord turned his face to him and they walked away. And he turned his face away. And it brought troubles and evils. It brought taskmasters and disaster. And then they turned their face to him. At the end, he turns his face to them and brings them into the promised land. Well, that's the same story for us. So that by definition means there has to be a darkness. And look outside. 
I think we're living in the darkness and I think it's gonna get worse. But that's good because last chapter we learned after all of that, his people will be standing. And not because we're awesome, but because he's awesome. And he will make us to stand through all of this because we've turned our face back to him and he's turned his face to us. So Deuteronomy 4, chapters 30, or chapter 4, verses 30 through 33, which we read some time ago. When thou art in tribulation and all these things are come upon you, and I would suggest that's today and the stuff that's coming, even in the latter days, that's us, if you turned unto the Lord thy God and shall be obedient unto his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake you, neither will he destroy you, nor forget the covenant of his fathers, which he swear unto them. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before, since the day that God created man upon the earth, and ask from the one side of heaven to the other, whether there hath been anything, any such thing as this great thing, or, or have you have heard anything like this. Did ever people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and lived? And I would suggest no. It's God speaking to us. It's only happened to God's people. So if his face is hidden, that's not necessarily a punishment. He's, he's hiding his face to provoke us to look for him. You know, we, we often will think, oh, you know, I've sinned or we've sinned and the Lord is punishing us, which is true, and he's turned his face from us. But he's not punitively punishing us. He's turned his face to provoke us to find him. We've lost him. We need to find him. And you see parables like that all over Scripture. So right now I suggest that his face has turned and evils and troubles and tribulations and czars and taskmasters will soon uh, rule the day, probably both here and in Israel. Israel is going down the same road we're going. And of course, the scripture are not written about America. It's not written about us. It's written about Israel. But we tend, the United States tends to mirror those things. And we're, we're at that place where God has that place that Abraham Lincoln was afraid we were at, the place that Washington thought we would be if we didn't, he knew, he knew we would go there. Moses already told the people they were going there due to abundance and sin in your heart. But you're going there to find the Lord at the end. And that's kind of where we are. So then the very last part of this is... Um, the Lord instructs Moses to write a song, it says, a testimony that will not be forgotten. And it's a song about the Lord, and that will be the next chapter. Because there's always, uh, and again, this goes back to, you didn't have a Bible, you didn't have a Torah scroll. So how are you going to remember this stuff? Well, that's how you remember it. Moses is going to teach you a song, a song that you can, it's going to get stuck in your head. You're going to repeat it all day long. That was his plan, and we'll get to that next week. But there's always a remnant because if you have a potential for restoration, there have to be some people that hear and obey. There have to be a remnant. 
If there's no remnant, there's no more potential for uh, restoration. So if you're going to have restoration and if you believe there will be salvation, that means there has to be a remnant. And that's the story of uh, the menorah. You know, when you think about, I, th I sent that, I don't know, that's the one you should do Sunday. The menorah is, <clears throat> we think about it sort of like the eternal flame. It's not supposed to go out. And the rabbis have had discussions about, oh, you know, the, the menorah goes in this bag when they're moving the tabernacle. And was it lit or was it not lit? Because they can't let it go out. And, you know, there's all these excuses how they managed to get the thing in a bag and, you know, two weeks down the road or whatever. But we think of the menorah as burning eternally, like the flame on John Kennedy's grave, the eternal flame. Well, that's not true. It's an oil lamp and it needs maintenance. So the reality is the menorah was lit at the first thing in the day, which would be now at sunset. All the candles of the menorah would be lit and they would burn all night. So in the morning, the priests would come in and they'd snuff out six of them because they needed to do maintenance. They needed to redo the wicks. They needed to add oil. They need, you know, it's an oil lamp. It doesn't just burn indefinitely except for Hanukkah. <clears throat> so there are times in the day that the lamps, the lamp is, the menorah is dim because most of the light no longer shines from it. But there's always one. They would never snuff them off. There's always one. And they would do their maintenance. And then with that one, they would light the rest. And evening would come. The day would begin because the day begins at what we call sunset. And then the menorah would be in its full glory. And that's kind of the picture that Moses is drawing here. Is there are times when the light is dim. There's only one candle burning and it's during the day. And you really can't see it. But there are times when the candle is, when they're all burning and it's dark outside and it's like a spotlight. That's the way it's going to be with life. Sometimes you're going to be following the Lord personally and as a nation. And sometimes you're not. But there's always going to be one candle burning. There's always going to be a remnant because there's always a hope for restoration. And that's the way the Torah works. That's the way Malachi is talking about. That's what Moses is saying. And th these are his last words, in, in essence. These last couple Torah portions are the final words Moses had to say to the people before he departed for his end. And the next week will be the uh, song that he taught them. And that's it. No more Moses. So that's the Torah portion tonight when he 